Welcome to today's podcast, Tackling the Opioid Crisis at the Source. The opioid crisis is arguably the single greatest public health issue in the last 100 years, in large part driven by dysfunction in the U.S. healthcare system. Solving the problem requires that we get serious about tackling the broader challenges of how we pay for, deliver, and receive care. Fortunately, upstream antidotes have been created and proven by forward-looking leaders and employers. It's time to apply these solutions to stop the crisis in its tracks, which will go a long way towards solving larger issues with our healthcare system. In this podcast, RAIN founder David Lawrence interviews Dave Chase, co-founder of the Health Rosetta, an open source blueprint for the next generation's health ecosystem. The Health Rosetta is focused on replacing our current system's practices and reversing the healthcare status quo. Dave's first book, The CEO's Guide to Restoring the American Dream, How to Deliver World-Class Healthcare to Your Employees at Half the Cost, became a Kindle number one bestseller. His latest book, The Opioid Crisis Wake-Up Call, outlines how the opioid crisis isn't an anomaly, but rather a byproduct of a dysfunctional healthcare system. With that, I'll turn it over to Rain's founder, David Lawrence. David? Dave, it's a great privilege and honor to have you for this very, very important conversation. And uh, I'll start with a little editorial comment. We've just gone through yet another election cycle where I don't think uh, the necessary conversation uh, or priority was applied uh, to the issue of the uh, epidemic in with opiate abuse and the dependency crisis. So let me begin by asking a little bit about your focus on the issue and uh, your quick overview of where we are today. Yeah, I came into it from a little different vantage point than, you know, what you may typically hear where, you know, some, you know, city leader or whatever, or maybe um, public health person. I came in a, from the standpoint of uh, a systems thinker on healthcare and particularly focused in on the employer side of the health, you know, healthcare scene, you know, about half of Americans get their health coverage through their employer. And I've been very immersed in that. And as I did get immersed in that, uh, you know, you'd have to be blind not to realize there's a lot of overlap, you know, because the reality is most people impacted by the opioid epidemic are working age people or their dependents. And so they're overwhelmingly those people get their uh, health coverage through their job. And so one way of looking at it is, Employer health benefits have really, uh, you know, been the unwitting enabler of this crisis. And as I looked at it, having looked at the larger system dysfunction of which there's many facets, it became very clear that the opioid crisis isn't an anomaly. It is our healthcare system. And, and so, you know, the only silver lining on that is there is a lot of attention on the issue. And when you solve for that problem, the only hope to solve it really systemically, other than just nibbling around the edges, which is most of what's happened, but when you actually tackle it systemically, you go a long ways towards solving the even larger healthcare dysfunction. So that's kind of the way I came into the issue. So that's um, um, a great overview. And it's interesting you use the word great enabler the crisis because obviously fingers are pointing in a variety of different directions uh, and there's you know, everything from government-led litigation to um, 
private litigation uh, involving drug companies, drug distributors. And as you look at uh, sort of the, the insurance landscape, the healthcare provider landscape, maybe you can unpack that a little bit in terms of um, enabling. Uh, because we think of, at least in, in terms of this crisis, but no different than other diseases, it, number one, the identification, the diagnosis, the treatment, and at times very often, you know, follow-up. Um, and maybe you can just explain for the audience a little bit about how this crisis has either been enabled, facilitated, or, you know, potentially uh, accelerated uh, because of the uh, insurance and healthcare provider market. Yeah, I mean it's it's an interesting one because I found 12 major drivers of the crisis. And so as you can imagine if you oversimplify the problem of which which is mostly what the media and government has done to date, you know, that's why you're not getting much of the impact. And so as it relates to the insurance piece of it, um, a good example, there's sort of two dimensions. One is um, the way that we have uh, decided to pay for health care over the last 20 you know, plus years that's really paralleled the rise of the opioid issue is we've really devastated primary care. And so that created a bunch of fertile ground that then the pharmaceutical companies, uh, you know, capitalized on. And so they certainly have accountability. And then you, you know, let's take a specific example where you have this primary care setting where you have to, in order to make any money uh, and hit so-called productivity targets when you're an employed primary care doc working for a health system, you got you have to get people in and out in seven or eight minutes. You be, basically become milk in the back of the store, that low margin thing that's designed to get you the high margin stuff. And so, the evidence for most of what people end up getting opioids prescribed for, things like joint pain, you know, back pain, knee pain, and so on, there's almost no evidence that uh, an opioid is the appropriate thing for something like lower back pain. It would be like putting FTP in your gas tank for, you know, your carburetor not working or your wheels being out of alignment. It's a chemical intervention for a mechanical problem. And so you might be able to mask the pain, but if you don't actually get at the root of it, um, you know, you'll have a problem. And so what the insurance companies chose to do is not pay for things or make it very difficult to access things that there's a lot of evidence that are very effective like physical therapy. And then they paid for opioids, you know, readily, and there's, bottom line is there's not margin in physical therapy, there's a lot of margin in pills. And so that was one of the big contributors to this, where we're now, you know, prescribing at six times the rate of a typical country, you know, that has just as much pain as we have, um, but we're throwing pills, you know, willy-nilly. And so that's a couple examples, obviously, with 12 drivers. There's other drivers as well, but those are some of the big ones. Very, very helpful. And um, I'll raise with you um, Dr. Michael Lesser, who's the leading psychiatrist on Retail Medical Psychological Network. Um, he and I have heard repeatedly 
uh, also in terms of the insurance market, that time period for uh, somebody going into a recovery facility and being able to be reimbursed for it, that uh, somehow that this was earmarked at 28 days. And the 28 days not being based on any kind of evidence, uh, not based upon what I'll refer to as a prescribed number by experts, but just seem to have been ring-fenced by insurance companies. I'm wondering if you have any insights, because once somebody does realize they have a problem with people, the loved ones around them realize they have a problem and they, they, they're looking to address this, um, one of the first ways to do it, of course, is for someone to begin the process of going to a facility, going through detox, starting to get the treatment and, and possibly the skills that are necessary to manage this problem. Uh, but that is only the beginning. But for some reason, this has been marked at 28 days when we seem to know it takes far, far longer than that uh, to begin to counter uh, the dependency cycle. Yep. Um, no question. And, and a lot of this just will follow some patterns that you see in other disease areas, um, not really, you know, being based on a lot of logic. And the private um, carriers that administer these benefits programs tend to just follow what the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services uh, do. It's sometimes shortened to CMS, and, uh, you know, the if you go upstream and you look at, you know, what, what led to some of this and what gets paid for, what doesn't get paid for, uh, the AMA has this committee that's called the Revenue Utilization Committee. Uh, basically, the CMS, the government, um, that decides, you know, how Medicare and Medicaid paid for and then the others follow – have this committee that for a long time, 27 of the 29 members of this committee were specialists, not primary care docs. And so guess what got paid for? And so things that, you know, are an intervention like a surgery or an injection or a pill, these things tend to get paid for. Uh, and then the things that, you know, require more kind of hands-on human touch and more, uh, you know, using the brain a bit more, uh, tend not to get paid well. And that sort of created this fertile ground. Um, and so that's, you know, so that's certainly what you want to be aware of as far as once somebody is addicted. But, of course, um, if you don't turn off the spigot of new um, addiction, you'll never clean up the mess. And that's much of where we focus is say, look, Here's here's the best practices, this is kind of the the king of the hill, if you will, on how to address somebody who's already addicted. And no question, we have to focus in on that. But you know, just like a bu if a bunch of people show up at the emergency department with symptoms of being poisoned, you know, you're going to stabilize those people and save them. But you're going to say, let's go upstream. You know, what's what's going on? Is there you know salmonella or is there something in the water? Uh, and there's not been enough of that. And so you look at that, and some of where you see employers like Rosen Hotels is a 
a story that I tell in my book, not just about the opioid issue, but, but basically how they, you know, are spending less than half of a typical employer on health benefits yet have the best benefits package of any company I've heard of in the country. And by the way, they have no opioid issue. And when we looked at the data, the opioid prescription rates were at one-sixth of the level of a typical employer, which basically puts them at the level of, you know, France or Italy, where, you know, there's not really a significant problem. Um, and so that's the key thing. And, and I think, you know, employers have a really key role in this. In again, they're paying for this. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of employers won't take action until there's a legal target on their back. Well, there is now on a few fronts, but the one related to this is uh, I'm aware of 15 lawsuits against employers around, um, you know, some family member suing the employer because they lost a family member. You know, after they passed, they got access to their medical records. Like, oh, my God, look at the rate of opioid prescriptions. You would have had to have been blind not to see this or willfully ignorant you know, is basically the case they're making. And so, you know, that's one of the things that I see. I mean, it's painful, you know, for those organizations and obviously the families, but that's one of the things I think that will be a catalyst to getting at this problem is companies realizing, okay, you know, this is, you know, a huge cost area, healthcare, second or third biggest cost. And we always say that our most important asset are our employees. And guess what? Our assets, you know, if you want to look at it that way, are getting damaged by the healthcare system. And so that's where the wake-up call is really happening now. Yeah. So, David, if I'm going to square the circle here, the, the theme of the research you've done and the theme of your book really is that uh, evidence-based uh, decisions have not actually been part of the insurance and healthcare market. Um, right various financial considerations how have however driven those outcomes and absolutely that, and that um, from a long-term basis these are as much a part of the crisis that we're now in uh, with respect to uh, substance dependency um, as what I'll refer to as the aggressive marketing um, that was undertaken by various manufacturers Yep, no question. There's a lot of that. And then there is a tremendous amount of misdiagnosis and overtreatment. If you look at uh, musculoskeletal, you know, which is basically joint issues, one estimate that, a, you know, one of the, the nationally renowned experts in employee benefits and high performance benefits is a guy named Brian Klepper. And his estimate is that 2% of the entire U.S. economy is tied up in non-evidence-based, non-value-add musculoskeletal procedures. So let me give you one example. Starbucks did a study with Virginia Mason, which is a well-regarded hospital in Seattle, and they found that fully 90%, 9-0, of the spinal procedures that they had been doing didn't help at all, that basically physical therapy or other approaches would have been more effective. You know, to their credit, they change what they're doing. Unfortunately, most health systems haven't because the orthopedic department 
is a cash cow. Um, and there's no bigger on-ramp to the opioid issue than musculoskeletal pain. That's, that tends to be the first on-ramp that most people have. And so that is a manifestation of this do more, bill more mentality and reimbursement system that we've had. And it's only when you fix that that you can actually tackle this problem. So let me ask a question about uh, the elephant in the room, which is sort of where was the government in terms of its oversight of the healthcare and insurance market? Well, they rubber stamped the AMA committee that I mentioned earlier. And so that's one piece of it. Um, there's, there's some progress that they made on an important piece, which is we'll call it sunshine. That's tend to what gets referred to. So you can Google your doctor to see how much they're paid by, you know, pharmaceutical companies or medical device companies. Uh, and that's, that's good. There was recent legislation that passed that expanded that sunshine to other prescribers like physician assistants. And so, you know, no problem with that. That's a step in the right direction. However, the government has completely ignored um, the other half of the equation, which is you need to have sunshine on the money flows in the supply chain between the, it basically goes pharmaceutical company to distributor to what's called a pharmacy benefit manager and, you know, a carrier. And then there's these people called benefits consultants or benefits brokers. They're all, you know, getting a lot of money in that. And you have to bear in mind that the healthcare industry spends more on lobbying than defense, oil and gas, and financial services combined. And so they get what they pay for. And, you know, I sometimes snarkily say that there's there's very few true progressives or conservatives in Congress. Eighty percent of them are preservatives. They're there to preserve the status quo. And so naturally they don't want sunshine on that because there's tremendous sums of money being made by that entire supply chain. And it's only when you have sunshine on that that you can, you know, start to get at the issue and recognize what's going on. As you think about where we are today, uh, the flip side of the coin is what do we need to do to begin to address this crisis and obviously uh, mitigate the, the truly tragic outcomes that uh, are occurring on a, on a daily basis. And I know you focus on this in your book, but maybe you could summarize for our listeners uh, some of the steps that are needed here. It really starts with recognizing that Calvary's not coming from D.C. to fix this. Um, there's a role that they have to play that's necessary, but it's not sufficient. This isn't, you know, Ebola or motor vehicle accidents or polio or other, you know, past you know, tremendous public health crises like this where primarily a government-led effort can solve it. As I said, the employer dollars are paying for this. And so the the step is recognize that. And as I've talked to my friends who are senior execs up to Fortune 5 companies and deliver the hard message that, you know, look, you are an enabler of this, the, you know, good news, bad news is every one of them has been personally impacted, you know, whether it's a family member or some friend that lost a, you know, kid who might have been a high school athlete or something like that. And recognize this is in your control. 
you can solve this. And it's not getting solved in one grand gesture from, you know, Congress. It's going to be community by community uh, solved. And so, you know, one community might be an employer like Rosen Hotels. Another example is uh, Plumas County uh, in Northern California. They have the highest rate of overdose deaths in the state of California, four times the state average. They are now two years running with no opioid overdose death. And so they did a few things, including um, kind of taking a page out of the pharmaceutical company's books. They did something they called academic detailing. Detailing is the euphemism for sales in pharmaceutical uh, world. And so they went out and educated the primary care docs and the emergency room docs where most of the prescribing was happening about, you know, what the CDC guidelines were. Because essentially, if you follow CDC guidelines, there's generally not a problem, but most aren't. Um, and so they did that and a couple other things that turned it around. And that's really, you know, what my organization's about is, you know, we, we say on our website, healthcare is fixed, you know, join us to replicate the fixes. And it's, it's both a true and an aspirational statement that all the solutions to fix the opioid crisis and the larger dysfunction have already been invented, proven, and modestly replicated. They're just not the mainstream yet. And so it's in, you know, every organization's power. I've seen it in rural and urban, private, public, large, small organizations. Um, the only, you know, common thread is, is they, you know, shed the tyranny of low expectations that we can't fix this and that it's like trying to solve Middle East peace, which a lot of people think fixing healthcare is like that. No, no country's got smarter, more passionate, doctors and nurses, and nobody's spent anywhere near the money. There's no reason why we should have low expectations. And so that's the great thing in this movement. People are just stepping up, and they're solving it. And frankly, most great societal problems that we've been tackling, you know, they happen grassroots bottom up, whether it's civil rights or, you know, better food, climate, you know, you name it. Um those things happen bottom up. Eventually, the politicians will run to the front of the parade on those things. Um, but that's really the step is just realizing it's in your power, have that mindset shift, and then just tap what's already working. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. And what do you think is the likelihood that uh, people will actually start to understand that that's what's needed? Because um, as people pointed out, uh, if only certain crises in healthcare were medical issues to be addressed by medical professionals, uh, but in fact they're not. Uh, there are a lot of constituents around the table, uh, some of whom are, you know, particularly driven by financial outcomes, uh, no less the politics. I was wondering maybe you can give us some perspective here. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned, the, you know, if it comes in a pill, it will get the attention. And, um, you know, somebody was saying about the impact of these uh, modern high-performance benefits plans. They said, you know, if this was in a pill, it would be the blockbuster drug of the century. And so, um, you know, partly, you know, using framing like that um, and uh, realizing, the, the again, the kind of good news, bad news is there's a lot of companies that are a breaking point and they can't ex accept not just the opioid issue but the broader healthcare cost issue. And 
typically, we'll see if it happens in healthcare, but typically when you reach 10 to 15% of a market, it tips in favor of whatever the new thing is. And if you look at the, the movement that is going right now, um, there's about 4 million folks represented in the um, basically in the certification program. Think of this as kind of like this lead or fair trade type of program to use those analogies. Uh, so after a year, that's a lot of progress, you know, so maybe we're another two years away from hitting, let's say 15 million. And so there's the aspirational reward there. And then, as I mentioned earlier, sadly, the rise in lawsuits, uh, will get people's attention. Um, you know, you saw it with things like, you know, compliance, things like Sarbanes-Oxley, you know, you've seen it with some of the cyber threats. Um, and so that's, that's going to unfortunately be a driver as well, that as risk departments, general counsels see that there's not only this, uh, liability around the opioid use, but there's also more cases developing with, that are along the lines of what's happened on the 401k side around ERISA breach of fiduciary duty. So there's both um, ERISA, which is the what regulates retirement benefits and health benefits, and then shareholder fiduciary duty. There's a lot of legal activity in those two areas as well that, uh, again, unfortunately, a lot of times that's what takes it to catalyze action within the, you know, corporate America, you know, employer realm. Dave, thank you for all the research. Thank you for the book that you generously uh, share with many people and uh, for your thinking. Um, one of the frustrating aspects, uh, particularly about the opioid crisis, um, is, again, that uh, some political lip service paid to it. Obviously, we now have new legislation. And what I would say is it just feels as though we're, we're kind of doing the same old, same old around this. And uh, we've seen, Dr. Lesser and I have seen statistics about this crisis possibly having crested, if I can use that word, uh, but another crisis behind it, this one with methamphetamines. And I guess, you know, uh, one of the questions I have for you is, you know, how you begin to think about this on a forward basis rather than waiting for the hair on fire moment. Sort of what is needed here to fundamentally and institutionally change uh, our approaches to healthcare and what I'll refer to as, okay, today it's opiates, you know, a number of years ago it was cocaine, tomorrow maybe methamphetamine, uh, the issues around fentanyl and its availability and importation to this country are extraordinarily profound. And for those listeners who are unfamiliar, uh, fentanyl being essentially a synthetic form of, um, of opium or heroin that has been proven to be highly, highly addictive and highly uh, uh, dangerous and deadly. So how do you begin to think about this on a forward basis? Yeah, first of all, I'd echo what you said in terms of it's actually benzos is probably the one that is most like opioids where it's about it's today where opioids were 10 years ago in terms of the level of addiction and death. And so that's the umbrella term for things like Xanax and Valium and so on. Um, so you're exactly right. And then the way that we think about it, given the level of entrenchment, um, the, 
parallel that I draw quite a bit is with uh, LEED. You know, your listeners may be aware of LEED, like LEED certified buildings, that most new buildings um, are LEED certified, whether it's a hospital, high-rise, you know, multifamily, you know, hospital, whatever. Um, and like healthcare. Let me just say, built in for, for the risk, yeah, let me add for the listeners, yep. this, this LEED certification is around uh, uh, energy uh, efficiency and environmental uh, standards. And there are various levels, and uh, now various buildings use it as a badge of honor. And yeah, exactly. Their, and their certification by different levels and such. And, you know, essentially over a 10 to 20 year period, they mainstreamed what was once a fringe idea of these kind of green built buildings. And like healthcare, you know, the built environment is a pretty entrenched thing. It's not like one day. You know, all the old inefficient buildings were raised, and magically the next day they're all green built. It's more like the old waned, the new rose up, and it happened geography by geography. So there were places like Portland, Oregon, and Austin, and Boulder that were early adopters, proved out the return on investment, and then it rippled through the country. And so there was a lot going on 18 years ago and 16 years ago, um, but uh, it takes a while. And so that's what we see now. Places like, you know, you, you might guess like Seattle and Denver are actually rebuilding primary care and some of these other things properly. And then places that aren't obvious, like Tyler, Texas, um, they're proving it out. And then, you know, that's getting replicated um, in the same way that LEED is. And one of the ways that we think will also take hold is you now have a situation where the largest generation in history isn't the boomers, it's millennials, and they are the largest chunk of the workforce. And by 2025, they're going to millennials and post millennials will be 75% of the workforce. Well, they get things like lead and fair trade. And so what, you know, we're doing is certifying these health plans over time so that, you know, when, you're looking at a job, say, five years out, you're going to go to the one that's got the, the certified plan versus the one that isn't because you realize I'm going to spend less money, I'm going to be kept out of harm's way, and so on, just like, you know, you, there's a certain set of assumptions when you go into a LEED certified building or you buy your, you know, fair trade chocolate or coffee. Um, there'll be meaning there, and and that's where – you know, something is entrenched as a, I believe that's actually the thing that will be effective. And you look at millennials, you know, they're responsible um, for so-called big food and big soda having the worst earnings the last couple of years. They certainly drove adoption of smartphones and social media. And so that's what we see some smart employers doing and say, look, we're going to open a new door. We don't take away all the benefits that they had, if people still want those old credit benefits, they can freely do that, but we're going to open a new door that millennials will get probably the first, um, but then with a good rollout program in three years, we can ripple the entire workforce through that. And that's how you kind of drive change, very grassroots, very um, highly replicable, and because it's so diffuse, it's really difficult to stop. That's my uh closing question on this uh, podcast. Uh, while we're waiting for transformational change in the marketplace, in the insurance, in the political sphere, 
uh, within corporations. What are uh, families supposed to do while this is still a work in progress? And then secondly, since in your book you have identified very, very successful, what I'll refer to as healthcare models, including inside um, companies, uh, what can be done to make sure that these are highlighted more broadly into the marketplace? Yeah. I mean, on the first question in terms of what families are to do, um, you know, if you uh, have someone who is enslaved by an opioid use disorder, um, it's really critical to, uh, you know, use the best available evidence, which uh, really points towards what's called medication-assisted treatment that helps stabilize people and then hopefully wean them off of that. Um, there's nothing that is coming close to that, and there's various other harm reduction approaches as well, but that's the biggest one, um, and making sure that that they're getting the help there because otherwise they're going to, the, you know, the recurrence rate is extremely high. It's like eight times when people are addicted to something like opioids. Um, and also, before they ever, you know, get the opioid, question it. You know, for most surgeries, aspirin, you know, Tylenol is effective for pain management. Um, and 30% of first exposure to opioids are dental work. And people are leaving with tremendous supplies of Vicodin, Percocet, so on. And just keep it out of their hands to begin with. Stop addiction before it starts. Um, and then, you know, how do these models get highlighted more? I mean, that's really um, what we're trying to do is, you know, engage with the faith and social service leaders, the civic leaders, the mayors, the civic-minded business leaders, and pulling together. And there's a community by where I live that had this horrible um, mudslide a few years ago. Forty-three people died, and it was just reported in the NPR in the last couple of weeks where they're actually treating the opioid issue like a natural disaster. Because like the natural disaster, the entire community came together. And so that's what they're doing because there's more people dying from opioids in their broader area than the mudslide, as horrific as that was. And so that's, you know, where everybody's got to step up and realize that we do need to pull together. There's not a simple fix on these things, yet there's some models to follow. And it's those, again, those grassroots movements, whether it's better food or energy independence or civil rights, um, these organizations that use those grassroots organizing models and, frankly, you know, use media. You know, if you look at some of these big societal problems, you know, it's media that provided a catalytic um, impact after there was some grassroots activity going on. You know, you look at Selma for, um, you know, civil rights. You know, one of the things that differentiated Martin Luther King was he understood media. Um, and you look at climate change, you know, Al Gore's film, or you look at Better Food, you look at, like, Super Size Me and Food Inc. You know, media can play a role, too. So there's some things going on there that um, we and others are doing um, to really raise this um, to greater visibility and give hope at the end of the day. Um, somebody called me a merchant of hope the other day. I was like, well, I'll embrace that. You know, um, where it is actually a solvable problem, um, but 
until you believe that, nothing will happen. So this has been a great conversation, one hopefully we can continue. Um, and the overarching uh, message is that the um, what I like to say is that uh, problems are far less intractable than we think what's been intractable have been our approaches to solving those problems. Some of the ideation that you, you've provided in your book is proof of that. And I think the overarching message of your last point, uh, Dave, is uh, leadership will have to come not from the grass tops, but from the grassroots and the demands for, for change. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. All right. Well, thank you again. Um, Again, not only for your time today, but most importantly for your book. Yeah, my, my pleasure. Really appreciated the opportunity to speak. Thank you for joining today's podcast. If you like this content and want more, go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a RAIN member. RAIN members get exclusive access to webinars, podcasts, the daily risk book email digest, expert content, and more. So go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a RAIN member today.